to Isaiah chapter 44. We'll read the first five verses of Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verse 1, Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For... I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. One shall say, I am the Lord's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come Let them show unto them, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. I have a quotation for you from the Reverend Thomas Brooks. I'd like to begin with this. I think you'll find it encouraging. If you, will have, if you would have God for your portion, then you must be willing to be his portion. God resolved upon this, that he will be no man's portion that is not willing to be his. You must make a resignation of yourselves to God, if ever you would enjoy an interest in God. You must be as willing to be his people as you are willing to have him be your God. You must be as much God's at God's dispose, as earthly portions are at your dispose, or else there will be no enjoying of God to be your God. God will engage himself to none that are not willing to engage themselves to him. He that will not give his hand and heart to God shall never have any part or portion in God. O sirs, as ever you would have God for your portion... It highly concerns you then to give up yourselves to God with highest estimations and with most vigorous affections and with utmost endeavors. According to that precious promise, Isaiah 44, 5, one shall say, I am the Lord's and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel God stands upon nothing so much as the giving up of yourselves to him, nor is he taken with nothing so much as the giving up of yourselves to him. Wise words from a Puritan minister. Well, we have seen some what we call special things today. Our confession of faith, I think rightly, divides 
certain things that we do for worship to things that are ordinary and things that are special. Vows are always acts of religious worship. They are made before God and in the presence of God and with regard to God. And so they are acts of religious worship, but they are special acts of worship. We don't vow all the time, and there's a reason we don't do that. Because not everything is worthy of a vow. Some people have, I think, made a mistake with regard to that passage in Matthew chapter 5 and then also in James chapter 5 when Jesus will say, swear not at all. And James will say, swear not at all. And they have taken those passages in a a baldly literal fashion rather than what they are intended to teach. And I'll show you that in just a second. But I can show you all the way through Scripture where vows not only are are, uh, indicated, not only where they are preferred, but where they are required. If it is wrong to enter into a vow, why would God himself enter into a vow? And so what is Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount? What is James saying in the Sermon on the Mount? And these are important questions as Bible learners we must understand. Um, We don't want to pit Scripture against Scripture. We remember that our first rule of understanding the Bible is what? That the clearer passages of Scripture throw light on the more obscure passages of Scripture, and that we want to interpret the whole according to what we call the analogy of faith or the analogy of Scripture, that is, considering it as having one author. And God is not irrational that he would say uh, yea in one place and nay in another. Who is God? Well, he is truth itself. So it is impossible for his word to contradict itself. Now that may mean something like, we come to this passage of scripture, we come to another passage of scripture, and we say, those things appear to me to be at odds with one another. What does that, what does that require? Well, like Solomon will say in the Proverbs, if the axe is dull, you got to put a little bit more strength to it. If you're chopping with a dull axe, gents, you know what that means. You're going to have to swing a little bit harder. Right? In other words, if you come to a passage of Scripture, and because of our own human frailty, may I say, like the dullness of an axe, it seems to us to be contradictory, well, we have to put a little more strength to it. And it's also, isn't it interesting that some people will say, well, you know, this is just an antinomy in Scripture. That's it. It's just an antinomy. It's it's God saying yea on, on, on the one part and nay on the other. And in God's mind it makes sense, but in ours it never will. There's no human being that can ever understand that. One of my favorite theologians said, just because something is a, is a contradiction to you doesn't mean the next guy that comes along won't figure it out. Right? It's a statement of pride to say, this is a contradiction in Scripture. But it's okay. It's somehow resolved in God's mind. Well, let's make sure that we put two more strength when we find such things. And so in the days uh, when, when Christ walked the earth, when he's preaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, it was a day when the Pharisees had descended into vows almost at the end of every sentence, like many do here in our age. Um, we have, and this is, this is no secret, what 
Pastor Riddell believes about our current society, that we live in, in, in days very similar to Isaiah chapter 59 or Jeremiah chapter 9 or Psalm 12, where we have uh, lies ruling the day. We don't live in an age of truth. We live in an age of lies. And what does that lead to? It leads to disbelief and skepticism. And so almost every sentence is punctuated, not with an exclamation point, but with the words, I swear. And so we say something and then we say, I swear. You know, because someone will say something and someone will look at us. Hmm. And so we follow it up with, because we have to fill up the silence. I swear. Right? Right? Many times the words I swear are actually a statement of untruth, not truth. People are saying I swear because they know that they have somehow jaded, colored, twisted, reinterpreted, spun the truth. And so they say I swear. Isn't that the, uh, the cry of the gossip? Right? The, the gossip will say, oh well. It's true, I swear. But it's not your truth to tell, is it? And that's what makes it gossip. Sometimes the violation of the ninth commandment is speaking the truth unseasonably when it's not your story to tell. Right? So Jesus and James both then are speaking against that overuse of vows. They had sworn by the gold of the temple, Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount. They'd sworn by this and they'd sworn by that. And Jesus will ask them, Tell me something. Which is greater, the gold of the temple or he that sanctifieth the gold? And so he turns their attention in all of their vows that they are indeed vowing in the presence of God. And vowing is an act of religious worship. Now, it's not something that we do all the time. And we, we might ask, why don't we do it all the time? Because if we do it all the time, if we do it on a regular basis, if we are having this you know, renewal, 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 or we're vowing, we're vowing, we're vowing, well then it just becomes meaningless and vows are reserved for things of weight and moment. And I think everybody understands that, truly. We go into a court of law, what is one of the first things that we do? And you know, here in our, in our legal system, we show the, the vestiges right? The vestiges, that's what I'm calling them, of our Christian heritage. Not that the United States was ever a, quote, Christian nation. I don't believe that. I, I, I stand with John Adams on that. When in, in the Treaty of Tripoli, he said, the United States never was and never will be a Christian nation. I think that to be true. Our national religion really is deism, not Christianity. And yet, riding on the coattails of English Puritanism, we have in our legal system some relics of that, some remnants of that. And so the end of every vow that we take, say in a court of law and a legal system or some other vows that we use, we always say, so help me God. Why? Because we're recognizing that vows are acts of religious worship made in the presence of God. And so why do we say in a court of law, why do we vow there? Well, because we're about to do something of particular weight and moment, we may, in a court of law, rule to take away someone's life, liberty, or property. You don't do that lightly. Right? Um, there is what we, what we understand a natural liberty. A liberty to follow God. A liberty to, like we read earlier, to eat, to drink, to, to work with our own hands, to do our own business, and to prosper in that. 
And if you're going to take that away from someone, well, that has to be an act of wait and moment, and so it's accompanied by a vow. You'll remember the leper of old. Right? The leper in Israel, and I don't think the leprosy that existed in that day is the leprosy that exists today. I think it was a different, a, a, a unique thing that God gave to the Israelites to teach them particular things. And one of those was, you don't get to restrict a man's liberty. He can't, you know, he, he has to put a veil over, his, over his, his upper lip. He has to cry, unclean, unclean. He can't come into the city. He's got to stay outside and all of that. You don't get to do that without particular strictures, without particular rules. And then, when he is cleansed, as a part of that ritual cleansing, what happens? A dove is released. Now you're free, once again, to go where you need to go and do what you need to do and flourish under the hand of your God. But you don't get to take that away from someone without weight and moment. And and so those vows are carefully administered, and they are hopefully upheld. And we have penalties for people who would perjure themselves. Beyond that, we think of marriage vows. Well, that's also something of weight and moment, isn't it? Remember, there are four reasons that God gives us in his word for marriage. What are those four reasons, you remember? Well, it goes all the way back to the garden before Adam ever fell. And God has Adam name all the animals. And by naming all of them, God is saying to Adam, and Adam is receiving this charge. Adam, you're in charge of the world. This is my world. I've given it to you to run. You are to subdue it for my glory. Make it sing for me, Adam, is how God would say that in our common parlance. And Adam, he looks around, and every animal has a male and a female, and there's no helper for him. He's thinking, i got a lot of work to do here. And God says, yep. I know you do, and I'm going to give you someone to help you with that work. And through her, you're going to have children, and they're going to help you with that work. You're going to have many hands to subdue that world unto me. By the way, God never withdrew that. We're supposed to be doing that even today. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is for the preservation of wealth. God gave marriage for the preservation of wealth through inheritance. But not just wealth, but Knowledge, savvy, know-how. We are to advance as a race through family, through marriage, through the preservation of knowledge and wealth and other such things through proper inheritances. The third thing is to furnish the church with a godly seed that there would be a heritage in this earth for the Lord. And then the fourth reason is to prevent uncleanness. Sadly, that's often put at the front of the line rather than the end, right? But what's important about all of that is we take vows at, 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 at our, at our uh, day of marriage because we recognize the weight and moment that God has placed upon a family unit for the advancement of his own image in the world. God's image comes forth from marriage. In the right way, in the legitimate way, to preserve knowledge and wealth and to advance our race and to, and to take up that mandate of, Adam, subdue the world for me. And so that is such an important thing that we take vows, that we're not going to destroy that. Normally a minister at the end of that ceremony will say, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Those are vows of weight and moment and they ought to be taken 
because God has chosen to advance his image through children. Another way we, we take vows is, is, for instance, as peace officers. We have some in the, in the congregation today. Well, what do they have? They have really, uh, you know, in Psalm 82, we, we read that magistrates of this world, whether they're judges or security forces or uh, peacekeeping forces or soldiers or whatever that is, they are called gods in this world. Elohim. Why? Because they have the power of life and death. Don't they? And having that power, they take vows not to abuse that authority. So there are proper ways of taking vows. But beloved, I think you'll agree with me here, right? We just talked about marriage. We talked about courts of law. We talked about uh, security and peacekeeping forces and other such things. They're all taking vows. Uh, Our civil leaders take vows, right? Not to violate our constitution. And they also say, so help me God, when they take that. Comment about that later if you want to talk about it. But that's how it works. That's the, that's the standard. If we don't have a standard, we don't have anything to shoot for. And at the end of that, we've talking, we, we have spoken about three, maybe four, temporal estates. And if we're willing, beloved, to make vows with regard to our temporal estate, I'm going to reason from the lesser to the greater. What about with regard to your eternal soul? And so we take vows of church membership. Because I'm just going to put it to you, this is my belief, that your souls are more important than any temporal estate. And if we're willing to take vows with regard to temporal things, we ought to be willing to take them with regard to eternal things. And so the vows of church membership, I think they are described in Old Testament format here in Isaiah chapter 44. Let's take a look at what it says there in verse, well, in verse 3. For I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. May I say to you that we have seen exactly that today. We have had people, uh, the Matheson family, they came forward and they made those vows that the Lord was their sovereign Lord, that his way of salvation, the only true way of salvation. And then the Lord, can I put it in this typological format, poured water upon their seed. What's the promise that the Lord makes here? That he will be a God to them and to their children. This is why we bring forth our children to the baptismal font. Because the Lord has promised to pour water upon our seed. Now he doesn't promise that head for head and soul for soul. We understand that. Not every one of Abraham's circumcised children was a believer. Ishmael was not. Not every one of Isaac's uh, circumcised children was a believer. Right? Uh, Esau was not. Not every one of Jesus' disciples was a believer. Judas was not. Right? Not everyone that had been baptized in the New Testament were believers. Simon Magus was not. It's not head for head in that way. But there are these broad and general promises that this promise is to you, like Peter says in Acts 2.37, to you and to your children. And to them that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And we can have confidence that God will work, will join with those, those efforts that we have to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Okay, so let's move on. They shall spring up as among the grass, as willows 
by the water courses. Children, you may not know this, but willows, especially in some parts of the country where I came from in Southern California, you know, uh, just outside of the L.A. Basin, there were all sorts of mountains. We had uh, within, uh, well, you could see it from the L.A. Basin, a 12,000-foot mountain peak. You can see that right from downtown L.A. And along with those mountains, you have creeks and valleys and so on. And you have a lot of water courses in those mountains and willows all over, all over. Willows grow up next to the water. And so that's what the uh, prophet alludes to here. Your children are going to grow up just like willows do by the water. In other words, not just are they going to spring up copiously, the Lord promises the advancement of seed to his, to his people, but notice more than that, that they'll be fed from that stream, the stream that was poured out earlier, right? They'll be like that man in Psalm 1 that is planted by the rivers of water and who yields his fruit in due season and his leaf does not fade nor wither. These are the promises that God has made. All right, so now verse 5. One shall say, I am the Lord's. Did you hear that today? I heard that. Have you uttered words like that? Hope you have. I am the Lord's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. Jacob is Israel. That is God's special people. I am among the people of God. That's what that means. And then third, what did we see? Um, another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord. The way we say that in our parlance is we say, he's, he's ready to sign on the dotted line. I'm ready. I'm ready to covenant with the Lord. And then fourth, notice what it says. He shall surname himself by the name of Israel. That is the one who has power with God. I've given up my name to that family. I've turned, as it says in Psalm 45, I've left my father's house and I'm now among the people of God. That's where my home is. That's where my inheritance lies. Is it something of weight and moment? It is. It is something of great weight and moment and we ought not to, uh, we ought not to think lightly of that. Let's look at a few instances of vowing in scripture Uh, we'll begin in the old testament let's look at psalm 50 for a moment psalm 50 is is about what's going on with the people of god as they gather before him there are several things that are said there. Uh, verse 7, Hear, O my people, I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or burnt offerings to have been continually before me. In other words, you offer me offerings, but you never offer in perfection. It's only by my mercy that I accept you. That's what's being said there. But notice we get down to now the wicked people that are among the, the, the notoriously understood people of God. No, by notoriously, I mean they are noteworthy as the people of God. The church of every age, beloved, has believers and unbelievers in it. I've told you this before. I'll tell you again. Uh, I came out of the Congregationalist background, and New England Congregationalism was all about having a, quote, regenerate church membership. If your pastor only had goggles I could put on, 
that would filter out those that are not regenerate and tell me those who are. That would be helpful, but the Lord has not seen fit to do that to anybody in the world. We don't know about one another. We give one another, obviously, a judgment of charity. We receive each other in that way. But we don't have those kind of goggles to filter, you know, so there, you know, as soon as you're regenerate, you get this bright red R, but you can only see it if you have the secret goggles. No, no, no. We don't know that. Right? There are wicked among the people of God, and God often addresses the wicked among the church. And that's what he does here in Psalm 50. Listen to what he says in verse 16. But unto the wicked, God saith, what hast thou to do to declare my statutes or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? What's a covenant again? It's a commitment made with vows. This wicked man has taken the covenant in his own mouth. He said such things as what? Jesus Christ is my sovereign Lord. But behind his back or behind his face, he's got cross fingers, right? And so we want to, we don't want to overblow our vows. We don't want to say, oh, you've taken vows, you're good. No, we want to make sure that what we have vowed, what has gone forth out of our mouths, is actually the expression of our hearts. That's what we're after here. But notice that there is this vow taking here, even among the people of God, and that in that instance it was done by one that was wicked. In Psalm 61. Verse 5, For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Now that's a heritage. That is a heritage worth vowing for, right? As we said earlier. In Psalm 66, across the page there in verse 13, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth hath spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Come and hear all ye that fear God and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth and he was extolled with my tongue. And then notice, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It's not just the vows. It's that those vows rise up out of hearts purified by faith. And then skip all the way over to Psalm 132, verse 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swear unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes, nor slumber unto mine eyelids, until I find out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Whenever we hear about David in the Psalms, we want to have one eye on David and one eye prophetically on Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ is that one who vowed in eternity past to build up a house for the Lord. Upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus says. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our Lord, when he walked the earth, used a a form of vow. You will recognize this as soon as I say it. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 times at least in the gospel record. Jesus will say, 
Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Whenever we do something like that with our speech, we are calling weight and moment to it, and it is a kind of vow. And so Jesus will say that. He didn't have to say that. He could have just spoken out. But he didn't. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you. What I'm about to tell you is extremely important. It has greater weight and moment. Make sure you give ear to it. That's what he's telling his disciples. The Apostle Paul himself used vows. Really? He did. Look at Romans chapter 9. Verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is that first verse? It's a vow. I'm telling you the truth. My conscience is bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, but I say it in Christ. You hear that? It's a vow. Vows are indeed important. They are not to be refused when they are uh, tied up with particular weight and moment like that. He will also do the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He will say, verse 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul. Wow. That to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. What does that mean? You remember that there was, a, there was some animus that had risen up, some disagreement that had risen up between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church. And there, there were those rising up in the Corinthian church that were saying things like, well, you know, he writes these heavy letters to us, but have you seen him? He's this little guy. He's got small man's disease. His speech is contemptible. Really, do we want to listen to a guy like that? He said he was coming, but he didn't. And that's what they're saying about Paul. And they're assaulting his ministry like that. And so the book of 2 Corinthians, among other things, is largely dedicated to Paul defending his apostleship. And notice what Paul says in this case of weight and moment, the relationship of the apostle to the church. He says, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you to this point, that's why I haven't come to see you. Because if I would come, it would have to be with a scolding. And I didn't want to do that. It's interesting when you think about it like that, right? The great weight that Paul attached to the relationship of the, um, of the pastor, uh, the apostle, and his congregation. And then in Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God... I lie not. Another vow given right here in the middle of Scripture. Why? What is going on here? In Galatians chapter 1, we remember that those Galatian churches that was in that region there in eastern Turkey, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Antioch, Pisidia, those churches had threatened to leave the gospel for works righteousness. And so in that case of wait and moment, when people would apostatize from the Lord, the Apostle Paul enters into a vow, the things I'm about to say to you, behold, before God, I lie not. Well, I'm just thinking then that we should follow the good examples 
that we have in Scripture, that end times of wait and moment, we should uh, make these vows on, on behalf of our souls and so on. Well, there are many other Scriptures we could turn to, but hopefully those few will suffice to, to give us leave to, uh, uh, to, to move on to this final uh, example of vows, and that is, that's right, God himself. God himself enters into a vow. Notice in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise. Um, in chapter 7, across the page there, verse 17. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, And he will go on to say in that surpassing priesthood of Christ that God made or God the Father made Christ a priest with an oath. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is in the wait and moment of our eternal salvation. God condescended with an oath that we would be strongly consoled Right? That we would have great encouragement that what God has promised, He will not turn away from. What a wonderful condescension on the part of God. Not only in Himself vowing, but giving us vows. What is the purpose then of vows? And this is humbling to think about. Right, We've been talking about uh, the way we use words in the afternoon sermon from... Proverbs 10, and we learned that proper theory of language like we talked about earlier, but we also learned that God gave us our mouths for a reason, that we might offer them up to him. We read in scripture of the calves of our lips, Hosea chapter 14. We read in Hebrews chapter 13 about the the uh, the confessing to his name, which is which the Lord receives as an offering from our mouths. And so what the Lord has done here is he has helped us in a couple of ways. Number one, by way of humility, right? Because don't we read in the Psalms, and we'll not take the time to turn there, but don't we read that the wicked come forth from the womb speaking lies? That is, the sinners that we are in Adam, one of those actual transgressions that we add to that is what? We lie. We tell lies. Sometimes we tell lies and we don't even know we've told a lie. Our minds have been so twisted around a particular desire that we've colored something, we've twisted it, we've, sh- we've shown a different light on it. You know, as a, as a former electrician, I guess I'm not a former electrician, as a, but a, a, as someone who used to work in lighting design, we used to talk about, you know, how one particular lighting scenario and then another lighting scenario would reveal different things. Sometimes that's the way we speak. We want to drive our hearers to something, and so we speak in such a way to drive them away to that skewed, just off-center, that eccentric version of truth. But it'll be for their good, we rationalize. The Lord, in giving us this ordinance of vowing, helps us to recognize, first of all, That there are good and lawful things that ought always to be coming out of our mouths. And then also that there are times when we're going to need 
greater encouragement to some good and lawful things. And vows help us with that. It's God's condescension to us. It's him knowing our frame that we are but dust. That's why he gives us vows. And to say that vowing is unlawful in the face of what we've looked at now uh, this morning in, in our sermon thus far, well, that is, it's superfluous, isn't it? it? It's ruled out of court. We know what James and Jesus are talking about when they say, swear not at all. They're saying, make sure that your yea is yea and your nay is nay. Don't need the, make sure you don't need the punctuation of I swear at the end of every sentence. Learn to be truth tellers. Such that, as we used to say, our word is our bond. But also, don't let that be to such an extent that pridefully you will say, so I don't need a vow. Because we do. In times of weight and moment, we need those things. So then, the next passage that I'd like you to look at with me is in Exodus chapter 24. Most of you who've been around here a while, uh, you know this passage pretty well. We use it. There are so many wonderful things that come flowing out of this passage by implication. But it is, uh, it's very important for us to understand it in this context as well. So Exodus 24 is not, you know, it's not the first chapter in the Bible, obviously. It's not the first chapter in the book of Exodus either. We remember what happened in chapter 14, 13 and 14, right? The people of Israel come out of Egypt. They're delivered out of Egyptian bondage. In chapter 15, well, in chapter 14, uh, Pharaoh and his uh, soldiers are found dead on the seashore. In chapter 15, we have the celebration of God's people for their deliverance. Then in chapters 16 through 19, the people of God prepare to meet the Lord on Mount Sinai. And then in chapter 20, the Lord comes down in great ceremony upon Mount Sinai. And then uh, at the end of that scene where the Ten Commandments are proclaimed, with the voice of God. And think of this with me for a moment. The Ten Commandments are proclaimed with the voice of God from the top of Mount Sinai. It's the first time in the world a group of people have heard the voice of God speak. And yet he spoke himself with his own voice from the top of Sinai and caused them to hear the Ten Commandments. And then when Moses goes up into the mount to meet with God, he writes those Ten Commandments with his own finger in two tables of stone. There's no other words and there's no other writing like that ever done in Scripture except a few instances when God will condescend with a voice out of heaven saying, for instance, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son, hear ye him, and so on. Okay, and so now Moses goes back up into the mountain at the end of the, of the Ten Commandments. They say to Moses, you go up there and talk to him. We're too afraid. Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake myself, but it's my job. I'll go up there into the mountain and meet with God. And God gives him in chapters, in the second half of chapter 20, then chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23, these chapters here in the book of Exodus, these are words that God gave to Moses to write down, to read to the children of Israel. And so Moses has a book that came from God. Isn't that great? So do we. We have a book that came from God. And Moses has that book and he's written all of those words down. And now he comes down from the mountain in chapter 24. And he gathers all of the people 
When, it, when we say he gathers all of the people, let's remember that that was probably somewhere around two and a half million. Arrayed before Moses with 12 pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And each tribe gathered to its pillar. And you can imagine the people that, you know, went off into the distance, right? And so then there are offerings offered at each of those pillars. And they take the blood from those offerings and they bring it to Moses in one bowl. And Moses takes that bowl and he has a hyssop branch. The reason it's hyssop is because it's nice and leafy and fluffy. And he dips that into that bowl. And then he sprinkles, first of all, the book. And then he sprinkles the people. And he does that after he reads every word to them that God has written in the book. And the people of God say, all that Jehovah has commanded, we will do. What have they just done? They have said, we are the people of God. We heard this, didn't we, earlier in our reading of chapter 33. This is what separates the people of God from the rest of the people upon the face of the earth. As we heard it back in Isaiah 44, they say, I am the Lord's. That's what they say here in Exodus 24. After Moses reads to them all that God will require of them, and they say, we'll do that. We'll do that. And so then he sprinkles them, which is tantamount to a kind of proto-baptism, separating them from the rest of the people upon the face of the world. And then 70 elders representing the entire nation, their ecclesiastical rulers, their church leaders, they go up into the mountain with Moses and they sit down at a table and guess who sits with them? God. That's what it says. It says, they saw the God of Israel, they ate and drank in his presence and he laid his hand not upon them. That is, he received them in a covenant meal, which is very similar. Uh, It's where we get the concept of the Lord's Supper, generally. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's not that, because it hadn't been instituted yet. But it is similar to that, in that it is an ancient Near Eastern meal where people receive one another. God received them into fellowship with himself. They had said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do and be obedient. And yet we will remember, won't we? That many of them, at least at this point in their lives, they're not ready to follow the Lord all the way. They said they would, but they come to Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 11, 12, 13, and they say, no, we won't follow the Lord into that promised land. They're yet, well, they are good professors. They've taken their vow, but they are not yet true believers. Now, I believe that many of those wilderness wandering People came to faith in Christ somewhere along the way. But when they came to Kadesh Barnea, we hear from Hebrews chapter 4 that they were unbelievers. Okay, with that background, let's read verses 1 through 11. And he, that is God, said unto Moses, Come come up unto the Lord thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, 
all the words which the Lord hath said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men out of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet as it were a paved work of a sapphire stone and as it were the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. What is this but an inception ceremony? The people of God take those vows and then they come into communion with God. The same ceremony is renewed because we'll remember that those that were there that day died in the wilderness and did not enter into the land of promise. So now we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29. For those of you that uh, haven't yet heard this or have forgotten it, Deuteronomy is after the 40 years of wilderness wandering. And the Lord is, is speaking through his servant Moses in five different sermons to preach to them, readying them to enter into the land of promise. That those children of those who died in the wilderness. And so the parents were there and made, those, made that covenant that day. That covenant will now be renewed with the people of God as they are ready to go into the land. Notice in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 29. You stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood to the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he hath said unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him, notice, that is not here with us this day. For ye know how we have dealt in the land, or dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which passed, but which ye passed by. And ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone and silver and gold, which were among them. Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood, and it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he shall bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. 
and so on. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? So the Lord will enter into covenant with those that are not there that day. That is, those who come from them, their children, generation upon generation. They should follow the Lord entering into that oath. And they do. Sometimes sincerely and sometimes not. Well, we're drawing to a close then. If we come to the New Testament, we will see, uh, and I'll have to do this very briefly, but you'll understand what we're talking about here. In Acts chapter 2, when the New Testament church is first founded, it says something very interesting there. In Acts chapter 2, we'll have those people that hear that preaching of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God makes himself manifest in cloven tongues of fire. Remember that? And the people, that is the, the 12 apostles, they speak with tongues, they speak in languages that... That, people, that, that they never learned, right? And people from all over the known world being then present in Jerusalem for the, pa- sorry, for the Feast of Weeks, they are there and they hear the great things of God. And when they hear about the crucifixion of Christ and recognize they were involved in that, they say to Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? We'll pick it up in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For, this, for the promise is unto you and to your children and unto all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about... 3,000 souls. How do they know that? How do they know there were 3,000 souls added that day? You see, a lot of folks read this passage and they think, okay, Peter preaches, a lot of people believe they're baptized and then they're left to their own recognizance. See you later. You've been baptized. Have a nice life. No, there were 3,000 added that day to something. What were they added to? Well, we're not left to wonder. Notice verse 47. Praising God and having favor with the people and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. They were added to the church. That is, there was a record kept of their membership, their belonging to Christ. They had a baptized record of the 3,000 that were baptized on that day. We go to chapter 4, there's another 5,000 added. Upon another sermon of Peter's pertaining to the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple. And it says that there were 5,000 added there. Well, beloved, these things are very simply the care of the Lord Jesus Christ for his saints. They weren't baptized into nothingness, baptized and then left to their own recognizance, baptized and then let go with no supervision, with no ecclesiastical help and, and instruction. No, in fact, it says that they were being taught daily. They were breaking bread from house to house. That is house of worship to house of worship. They were worshiping in homes because they didn't have a church building. This this was their first uh, few weeks together, few months together. But there was knowledge of who was baptized, who belonged to Christ and who didn't. You see, these things are all tied together in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, verse 27, we'll read about the Apostle Paul. He's converted. He's a persecutor. Now he's converted to Christ. 
And he comes to Jerusalem, and all the apostles in Jerusalem, they're afraid. They don't want to talk to that guy. He's been arresting people and taking them to jail for confessing Christ. But Barnabas comes alongside Paul and brings him and says, no, he's okay. That's a part of the recognition that belongs to a church member. right? There were letters that were given with regard to Apollos, the preacher. He was given letters so that when he travels to another place to preach, that they should receive him. And we have all kinds of indications like that, that the apostles were actually keeping track that churches were being established with an identifiable membership. And how was that done except by public profession of faith as you've seen today? It's the same thing. We stand in a very long stream of doing exactly that. All right, well, I don't have much time left. Let's, let's just make a few uses, okay? Let's, let's make a few applications. The, the first thing is to remember that The visible church in scripture is called a kingdom. It's called a house. It's called a family. It has a membership to it. In our day, we have turned a a lot away from that. We've said, that's not really what matters. Are you going to church? That's good. Yeah, that's a good thing. Especially when you have kids in the home. You should go to church. Right? But, you know, after you're adults, some people drift away from the church. Why do, they, why do they drift away from the church? Well, because the outward importance of it tends to wane. And it wanes in our society. It's not just among individuals. Generally speaking, you know, as long as I have Jesus in my heart, I'm not really concerned about the church. But, beloved, that's, that's really backward from the right scenario, isn't it? What does that right heart want it wants a right expression right so this is a house it's a it's a kingdom Uh, in hebrews chapter 3 it's called the house of jesus christ it's called a kingdom over which jesus christ reigns as king it's called a body with jesus christ as the head All of these things speak to a visible administration of the church. Now, there's only one church. There's not the invisible and the visible church considered as two different churches. It's the same church viewed infallibly with the gaze of God in heaven. That's the invisible. And then there's the visible church viewed by fallible and limited men here upon earth. And very often these, these, you know, that language overlaps like a Venn diagram does, right? The visible and invisible language of Scripture. Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, those of you that have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, he's not talking only about that invisible baptism which is done by the Spirit. He's talking about outwardly being baptized that the sign would actually have the reality accompanied with it, right? I mean, none of us are going to be happy with just the outward expression. But we also ought not to be happy with just the inward expression as well. Because the church of Jesus Christ is in this world a visible kingdom, house, body, etc. Which means, like any other society, it is governed. It is ruled. It has strictures to it. It has liberties, it has rights, it has responsibilities. And all of those things we take on when we, come, when we become members of the visible church. 
So that's the first application, right? Second application is we want to remember, as we said earlier, we're going to reiterate that for a use today, that there is a, a wonderful understanding that we have that this is a waited moment. This is something that is worthy of taking a vow for because we're talking about the matters of our souls. And beloved, as your pastor and as a pastor, I'm all about getting you to think about your souls. That's what I want because very often we get busy in this world and we don't think a lot about our souls or we don't think about our souls as we should. You know, I got work to do. Excuse me a minute. Excuse me, conscience, for a moment. I have work to do here. Let me get on with that. Right? And there are reasons why we do that. Not good, but there are reasons why we do that. There, you know, we, we might give reasons. We might even call them excuses. But at the end of the day, the point is that when we hear the vows of church membership being taken, we want to say to ourselves, this is of sufficient weight and moment. Our souls are precious. Remember Psalm 49? His soul is precious. It endureth forever. No man can give a ransom for his soul. You can gain the whole world and lose your own soul. That's what it says. And so to be in and among the visible people of God and to be under the means of grace and hearing regularly the preaching of the word and to see, to, to witness vows as we've done today, all of these things are things that God uses and he, he dovetails all of these wonderful things almost of infinite variety and he brings them in and puts them in that stream of salvation that belongs to his people. The third thing I want you to remember is... Um, Vows are given to us to humble us and to help us to know that there are times when we need to take vows to give us that greater sense of importance that we might otherwise miss in terms of depriving someone of life, liberty, property, as we've said, of wielding uh, the power of the sword, as Paul will say in Romans 13 for the civil magistrate, the guy who, who takes God's vengeance upon evildoers and encourages that which is good as a peace officer or a soldier, but also with regard to your souls. Uh, the third thing that I want to remind you of here to make use of is let us be people of truth. Let us not make the taking of vows here that we've heard today uh, cause us to press too far down that road where we would punctuate our speech with the I swears that we ought not to. We want to be people of truth. Let's close with Matthew chapter 23, and we'll be done. The Mathesons today have joined an imperfect church, populated by imperfect people, sinners. That's who we are. There are those, uh, and we, we, we've all known them, this is sort of a, uh, a bad habit of Reformed Presbyterians recounting old and better days, days of covenants and so on. Many have withheld themselves aloof from the church because it's just not quite good enough, right? It's like the old uh, Dr. Seuss book. If I ran the zoo, said young Cyrus McGrew, I'd make a few changes. That's just what I'd do. The lions and tigers and that sort of stuff that they have at this church. It doesn't say church in the book. I'm 
adapting, are not quite good enough. So people hold themselves aloof from the church because it has problems. There's no perfect church, beloved. Listen to what Jesus will tell the people of God in Matthew chapter 23. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not after their works, for they say and do not. And this chapter begins one of the heaviest condemnations of the scribes and Pharisees. This is that passage where we hear Jesus say over and again, Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Does he release the people of God from their duty to those who sit in Moses' seat, that is, those who are in that day occupying the place of church authority? He does not. Like I said, they've joined an imperfect church today. Right? Let us all then pull together that we may have what we read about earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4, the more and more. As all of us together under Christ see his church beautified and perfected as days go by. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto thee thankful for the ordinance of vowing. O Lord, we thank thee that in the, in the especially important area of our souls, our eternal disposition, our salvation from the wrath to come, our growing in grace, our being committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing that he is ours and we are his, O Lord, that thou hast given us vows to do just that. Help us, Lord, to to be humbled in the taking of vows. Yet also, Lord, help us to be encouraged in the taking of vows. And Lord, we pray all that we have heard today would contribute to that dedication that we ought to have to Jesus Christ. That as the people of God heard of the light yoke of Christ, even back in Exodus 24, and while we might call that a grievous yoke in their day, certainly it was light having come out of Egypt. Lord, that we too would confess that the yoke of Christ is a light yoke and that we would with joy take it up as his redeemed people. Our dear Father, we pray that we would be encouraged by what we have seen and heard today. As we've seen children come into the visible church and and that we Uh, confess that they are a part of us and they will take place with us here and stand when we stand, sit when we sit, sing when we sing, pray when we pray, hear when we hear. Lord, that they might know to whom it is they have been dedicated by their parents and that they might in their day call upon thy name. And we pray that thou wouldst make that early. And we pray that as thy people we would refresh and help and encourage one another to the loyalty that we have professed unto thee. And Lord, that thou wouldst be pleased through these vows to advance thy church and beautify her. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.